I'm Alon Ben-Mir, and welcome to another episode of On the Issues. My guest today is Daniel Bartal, Professor Emeritus at the School of Education, Tel Aviv University. Daniel has directed most of his attention to the study of the socio-psychological foundation of intractable conflicts and peace-building, including reconciliation. Throughout his long academic career, he developed theoretical frameworks for concepts like siege mentality, intractable conflict, security, collective emotional orientation, and much more. He retired in 2015 and decided to devote his second career to political activism. He founded a peace movement called Save Israel, Stop the Occupation, with the goal to struggle for ending the Israeli occupation of the West Bank and establishing the Palestinian state. You can find his full bio on the page for the episode. Yeah, in our previous uh, conversation, we talked about um, the problems of two-state solution, uh, uh, where it's going, how difficult it's becoming over time. I want to look at it now from a different perspective. Suppose, suppose the Israelis and the Palestinians are ready to sit down and talk about peace agreement. Let us say based on a two-state solution, which I still think is the only really viable alternative regardless. I maintain that given the history of this conflict, given the hatred, the distrust, the animosity, the victimization of each other, given the fact that there is deep sense of insecurity, not only by the Israelis, but the Palestinians themselves who feel even more insecure than the Israelis, given the fact that you have constituencies in Israel and among as well the Palestinians, who still believe that they can have it all. I maintain uh, that you need, before you can actually make significant concessions, big concessions, by the future of Jerusalem, the future of the Palestinian refugees, the massive land swap, the settlement, and all of that, you're going to need a process of reconciliation. Uh, say along the line, not exactly, but what happened with South Africa when Mandela basically had to make a choice in a peace and reconciliation, because otherwise they would be killing each other, uh, and that is something he wanted to avoid at all costs. What I'm saying is Israelis and Palestinians ought to also agree, before they can begin serious concession, to begin that kind of process, how to reconcile the historic narrative, how to reconcile the religious narrative, how to reconcile the ideological narrative, how to begin to change the mindset, the perception of both sides, that in fact they are facing one reality, they have to coexist, they don't have a choice but to coexist, they can kill each other for another hundred years, or they can make peace, but they are, their coexistence is inevitable, as neither can get rid of the other, simply, just as that, as such. So, you, having been working on this particular aspect of the psychological dimension of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, do you see it in the same manner as I am looking at it? Okay, it, it's, it's, you, you are raising a very, very complex issue. 
In principle, when we look about the peace processes in the world, only very few, I, I mean, I know one definitely, that there was a, a agreement overnight almost. You know, overnight is a metaphor, I mean. It's uh, Sadat, Egypt and Israel. Where, uh, you know, I usually like to, to tell which is true, so in the, in the Israeli carnival in March 1977, Sadat was carried through the streets of Israel when he was dressed as an officer of Gestapo, which in Israel is the ultimate enemy. I mean, it couldn't be worse. You don't have to be devil. Officer of Gestapo is the worst. And then, a few months later, he arrives and is accepted like a hero when all the Israeli leadership are waiting, you know, and give him the red. So this is the only case. The rest of the cases, it's a long process. It is... But if I may interrupt you one second. When you mentioned the Israeli-Egyptian Israeli peace treaty, we have to also remember that there was no occupation of Israelis, I mean, Israelis occupied the Sinai, but it was pretty empty from real presence of Egyptian. The Egyptian as a country, as people, did not suffer from the Israeli occupation day in and day out, right? So, so it was much easier for Sadat to come to Israel, having won so-called political victory, Basically, he could claim he won the Yom Kippur. Your war, right. Yeah, I won the war. So he could come to Israel as a hero, saying, I want peace as long as I get back every single inch of my territory, I'm ready to make peace. So the elements that, uh, that uh, the, the, the relationship between Israel and Egypt then are totally dissimilar to the relationship between Israel and the Palestinians today. Because here there was a 50 years of continuing occupation with day in and day violence, day in and day out, you know, narrative, acrimonious narrative that has poisoned generation after generation, three generations being poisoned by that. So I distinguish, I, I, I feel it's the two are not similar. Some, but still have yeah. to remember that uh, about 30 years, uh, Egypt was a major enemy of Israel. Uh, the wars 48, uh, 56, 67, and 73 were obviously all of them involved Egypt. And Egypt was the most powerful enemy, leader of the Arab war, leader of the enemies. Uh, so if you take the uh, psychological load that was going on, uh, it's true, it's hard to measure where and more, but there was a lot a lot of animosity and hatred. But there's another component to the difference between the two sides, and that is territorially speaking. It's true. You know, so there was a difference. There's a huge difference. Here, the Egyptian came in with one single claim. We want every single inch, and they got every single inch. The same cannot... Yeah, but, but you have to remember that the beginning of the story, beginning of the story, let's say 56... Oh, no, no, so, I agree. So, you know, it was a matter of a really Jewish state in the middle of the Middle East. Except that we know now, we know for sure, that under no circumstances, Israel will return 100% of the West Bank. Right. And that's the point. Right, right. There's a huge point there. There may be land swap, 
they may be all kind of arranged. But Israel, oh, there's the future of Jerusalem, that's a bigger problem, there's a question of the Palestinian refugees. So the two are, in my view, incomparable. That is, Israel, same, same token, made peace with, with, the, with the Jordan. Why? There was no further money more territorial dispute per se. It was very easily settled. Basically, we rented from you for 25 years, but Jordan also was able to take back every single inch of territory. The same is not going to happen with the Palestinians. And that is, in my view, a very distinct difference that needs to be addressed in one form or another. And I'm not suggesting that the two cannot reconcile. I think they will reconcile over yeah. time. But I'm saying it. we need a process to, to start that reconciliation that precede, precede a formal agreement, a peace agreement. <laughs> okay, I, you know, it, it's... It, hard to, to evaluate the situation, but I want to make two points, really. One, usually when I look at this type of uh, situation, I try to compare to other situations. And uh, clearly there were other situations which really involve a very, very bloody conflict. Uh, take the Guatemala one or uh, El Salvador, where the government was vicious in... Uh, really annihilating villages and uh, raping and, you know, 200,000 uh, Salvatorians were killed, mostly by the... And eventually they, in uh, maybe two or three years, reached the peace agreement. Uh, also, there was such animosity and there were two ethnic groups, in fact, some Indians, Maya, especially in Guatemala, versus the white, uh, and they reached. So... Um, Saying you need the process, I would say the second point is that in the Israeli case, still we have to remember that it's not something overnight. There was a process. There was a process. Even with Egypt, there was a process. I mean, no, it was very short. Well, very short. Very I mean, but two here, years, three years but to, here to remember completely. that you know we are talking about completely different situation. Let's assume that such a negotiation would have been carried in 70s. You know, it would be here, let's not forget, there were 80s, there were 90s, there was a dream, there were goals. We saw the peace with our eyes. So I think the process is going on. At the moment, we are in the regression. But there are, for example, 20%, and certain islands, as I say, in academia, in artistic circles, civil society that already moved a long way. Even in the army, you know, you hear uh, voices that are saying that uh, we will need eventually to resolve the conflict. So it's not that you begin from zero. No, no, I'm not, and no. In, I, we are moving. I'm not suggesting zero. But you are zero. right, uh, two points, that in order to move, the leaders will have to be very determined. Like what? Make like the commitment. Goal. Yes, a total like commitment. Goal. You know, yeah. made the commitment. Yeah. Also the army, you know, people don't remember. But the French army rebelled. Some of the divisions were marching on Paris. And he was very determined. And even if you know, obviously, he decided that he will not take responsibility over friend, uh, Frenchmen who were in Algeria. Left them. And if you want, come back. And they are very, very angry 
eventually the over a million people started to move to France uh, back. So we, we see the determination how they can move. And there is no doubt, I agree, so there will be what we call spoilers. On both sides, there will be spoilers. But then it will be dependent on the determination of the leaders if they will be able to, to move straight. And one more point. I think that is very important. Uh, you, do, you should not present the peace as something that uh, Perez did. It was a terrible mistake. Something you know, like? You know, the new horizon, new east, etc. Because peace is a painful process. You have to depart from dreams. You have to uh, pay a price for this. And, uh, and you have to talk about it. So it also depends very much how it is presented. So very much depends on the elite, depends on the leaders. And what you see, by the way, and this is a major point, so the peace solution, alone, this is the key in my opinion, the peace solution has to satisfy the basic needs of the societies. Well, uh, needless this to is say, really, of course. And, and yeah. if not, nothing happens. And we see cases, I will give you two examples, uh, Basque and Northern Ireland. When they struck the deals, both cases, they were always spoilers. But what did happen alone? What did happen is that the great majority of society members were happy. Their needs were satisfied in Basque and in Northern Ireland. Yeah. And they didn't follow. And eventually, what they call the new IRA, the new ETA, were not supported. They were unable to mobilize new people. And eventually, with time, the violence stopped. The people went home because it, and I believe that the same will happen here. So this is a very important point. If the settlement will satisfy the needs of Israelis and Palestinians, this will be the process. And the process will be that there will be de-escalation of the conflict. And now I'm coming to your point. And now we will have to deal with the nitty-gritty. And this is reconciliation, which means because there is some kind of disagreement. Some people are saying that reconciliation begins only after peace settlement. Some people say, by the way, I agree with you, that you cannot cut artificially. And, and reconciliation has to begin as early as possible when you start to you see, My feeling is once you have leaders who, are, who make the commitment, we are committed to this resolution, to a two-state resolution, whatever the case may be. Once there is a commitment, then you are simultaneously, you begin a process to begin to mitigate the differences between the, as people, people to people. In my view, that is central, central to materialize to realize what you agree politically to do. That is between the leadership in terms of how is the final settlement going to look like. But unlike, you see, unlike the example you just cited, be that in Northern Ireland, be that in Africa and elsewhere, they were not fighting for the same land. This is a significant difference. This wasn't a question of two states, creating two independent states. There was not a question of the same land to, over which both have historic 
religious claims for that matter. That, in my view, makes a difference, a huge difference, and makes the conflict between the two sides extraordinarily diff more difficult. Because I don't know, I, have, I mean, I've been thinking about it. Is there any similar conflict like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that we can actually say, this is really very much similar to that? And honestly, I could not think of one where there's so many elements are involved in it, and you cannot solve them all at the same time. You're going to have to deal with various, and every single conflicting issue is massive, is major, and to that I attach the psychological aspect of it, that is the historic narrative, the religious narrative. If you don't mitigate, for example, can you really have a peace unless you change the educational system in, in the Palestinian territories? and stop educating the kids to hate the Jews and to hate. Can you, stop, can you actually have a peace and let the Israelis too begin to change the mindset of the new generation? That, that not every Palestinian is a terrorist. And so you're going to need a process of education. You need, to need, you need a different kind of narrative, by, not just by the political leadership, by the other leadership from the civil society and others. Start talking openly and clearly. This is two people are stuck with one another. We're going to have to find a formula how to coexist peacefully. So that is why I think, notwithstanding the fact that you need to find solutions to the big issues, you're going to have to have one of the bigger issues is how to bring that about. And to bring that about, you're going to need to have that kind of dialogue that perhaps uh, simultaneous with the negotiation take place. That is, once you have that commitment, like you say, we are going to reach an agreement, comes what may. If you have that commitment, then you're going to allow your society, your leadership, civil society, political leaders, and others to be able not to open up and say, let's work together because we are committed to reaching an agreement. That's how I see it happening, or else I see, I think it's going to be basically impossible otherwise. But you're right, but I would say so there is one a more important condition, one more important condition. And I mentioned before, I will put it differently now. Both nations have to feel that the situation with the settlement changed for better. We see what happened with Oslo, and this is, in my opinion, is catastrophe was, that from the point of view of Palestinians, there condition deteriorated. Well, of course. Of course. You know, look, look you all have In the 80s, Palestinians could A, work in Israel. Yes, yes. 300,000. Yes. B, they were free in the land. They could move freely. Anywhere, exactly. Anywhere. 1993 changed. Rabin made terrible mistakes with this. A, he, in order to stop the terror. He did not allow Palestinians to enter because he started to, from time to time, to stop uh, Israel movement. And he created this ABC where Palestinians could not move. Yes. So yes. what did happen to them on the ground, so, you know, suddenly, you know, I remember, you know, even a friend of mine, just an example, you know, he uh, is a construction builder, and he had workers in Gaza. And they were coming, working, you know, lived, etc. 
families knew each other, and then he, they couldn't come. Yeah. At the beginning, he paid them, and then he stopped, obviously. So they didn't get an income. On the Israeli side, where there was this dream that there will be complete end of terror, didn't happen. And so they say, okay, if we are giving our land, because this was a very important part, because Israelis believe that this is our land. We gave them, what did we get? Continuation of terror? No. So the point is that you have to see change as it happened in Northern Ireland, as it happened in Basque, in other places. Then you can go to second stage and start to move on the psychological level. And I can tell you alone that uh, it just happens that I'm sitting here. But during the Oslo Agreement, I was working as a consultant to Rubinstein, Minister of Education, and I was appointed as a responsible for peace education. And we started to prepare plans. You know, I assembled all the heads of departments and immediately started to think about, to approach it from two different angles. One, I called it long term. Mm -hmm. We have to change school books. Yeah. We have to change curricula. And short terms, because you know how long does it take to write course, a book? Course. Many years. You know, it's a project for four or five years. But I knew that we have to do it now, immediately. So I had a short term project in terms of ceremony, in terms of all kinds of things that I could immediately move into class. And we started. It all ended on November 4th. Yeah. All yeah. ended November yeah. 4th. Yeah. Up to November 4th, we're working. So it's possible because we were in this point alone. It's possible to do it. I do believe that it's possible. I saw how I, you know, was Except managing that, it. But the conditions right now have changed so dramatically since 1993. What you have now, you have five, six times as many settlers in the, in the, in the West. So, but, it, but this is a different right. Well, but no, but this is a, this is a no, major obstacle. That's a major spoilers. obstacle. Yeah, they will be the spoiler. Yeah. Now, yeah, let us say you keep the three blocks, uh, which house the majority of the settlers. East Jerusalem settlers are not going to be moving anywhere. They're going to stay there. Right. One, one from one another, they'll stay there. But you're still going to have to move 100, 100,000. If this trend continues, you might have to move 200,000. So, so the conditions have changed. I'm which means angry. once there is an agreement, uh, it's going to be extremely tough to negotiate it. You know? so what do you do with these settlers? Where do you eventually draw the line? Who's going to get what? What is the future of Jerusalem? Notwithstanding all of that, the prerequisite, as I see it, I think I really believe this very strongly. The prerequisite is that a commitment is made, comes what may, and that the process to begin mitigating. Absolutely, the no, two I, agree, I agree. That's, in my view, central to reaching some kind of a permanent, permanent agreement. Without which, uh, they can, you know, it will be. Um, the, the deep-seated today hatred between the two sides. I agree, I agree. It is Absolutely almost, agree. almost and look, impossible it, to mitigate. Alone. Without the, okay, now let's kind of move into vision. I assume, and I strongly believe that it cannot be otherwise, 
that because of the 100,000 people, in contrast to what was going on in Egypt, the process will be very long one. Exactly. So I believe and can estimate that it will take 10 years, even five years, where Israel is on the Jordan River and slowly, slowly are people moving first the ones that want, you know, there is a very high percentage yeah, of the settlers who are ready to. On themselves, we know there are about 20,000 of ideological settlers. Yeah. About 20,000. But as they will move, and they will move, and you have to build houses, and you have to prepare, etc., etc. In this time, I agree with you, so within this process, yeah. you have to begin immediately exactly. what you will call reconciliation exactly. of right. Absolutely. Absolutely, immediately. That's what I'm saying. Right. Because to facilitate that movement, right. Right. you're going to have to build the trust. Absolutely. That something that's going to be along, this is, the, this is our destination. You begin to build the trust. As, as you build more and more trust, it will be easier and easier to make the kind of concession that is going to be necessary. For them to 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 reach an agreement, I, I mean, I, I see that 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 is as as one of the main prerequisites to to eventually come to terms with the reality of, of coexistence. You know, I remember very well in the eighties when I visited Jerusalem and I saw, like you just said, Israelis going back and forth to West Bank. They do shopping and they. Palestinians go to Tel Aviv, and there was hardly any incidents of any kind. And I then looked at Jerusalem, I said, now this Jerusalem now represents the microcosm of the future of Israeli-Palestinian coexistence. It was there. It was visible. You didn't know who was an Israeli and who was a Palestinian. I have that vision. I believe in that vision. I still believe that. If it was possible then, it is still possible today. I really believe that. You're so we, we, yeah. yeah, you see? So, yeah, yeah, right. Because it's not a situation, again, in 50s, where there was a complete separation and, and extremely... Here, there are memories. There are collective memories. And it's true that the more time passes, as we agreed before, will be more, more difficult. We know, for example, that it was much easier to begin and end the peace process in the 90s. Oh, yeah. It will tell you why. For example, uh, I just supervised a dissertation about ethos of conflict in the Palestinian society. Yeah. And a, a guy by Ronnie Shaked, Ronnie Shaked was a Shabak person, and then he worked in Idiot Achronot. He was a, a, the reporter for, for Palestinian side. So, he knows them perfect. And what he found in the dissertation, how the ethos evolved. For example, give you one example just. In the 90s, Palestinians did not commemorate Nakba. Yes, yes. And they didn't have... The Nakba, the catastrophe. Catastrophe. Of 1948. So that, uh, you know. Oh, they started to develop it towards the end of 90s. Yeah. So, uh, as an example. But also, many of the ceremonies or many of the collective memories or narratives, if you want, institutionalized well after 90s. That's right. That's so, right. That's in right. the 90s, yeah. there were no foundation for the hatred that narrative provided. 
and uh, it was easier. Uh, it was easier, easier. But now, you know, a generation later, and that has been embedded. And today, you know, the moment you talk about Palestinian refugees, the Nakba is mentioned first and foremost. Right. right. And from the Israeli perspective, of course, the Jewish perspective, it's a Holocaust. It's a Holocaust. So right. there's there's a sort of drawing some kind of equation, albeit the two cannot really uh, be equated in in any shape or form. So so let me let's I'd like to to bring a, one other point and we try to conclude with that, and that is. Uh, where, where, where do we go from here? I mean, <laughs> I've been struggling. <laughs> okay. I've been struggling with this for uh, a generation, at least, I am not kidding, 25 years, and people say to me, where the heck do you have that patience? Because in the final analysis, I believe in the inevitable. The ineptability, of course, and I'm saying to myself, however they hammer against one another, and you mentioned you know, many examples, albeit they are not necessarily uh, similar in, in, as such, but there is some element of a human nature. They are similar, but not the same. Not the same. There's a human nature. And the human nature, at one point or another, in any kind of conflict, you know, to resolve it, you, need, uh, you reach a point of exhaustion. I don't think the Israelis and the Palestinians will end the conflict necessarily because it's some kind of catastrophic event. But I, they may, may very well reach a point of exhaustion where they no longer feel they can improve their position much further. But for that to get to that point, there's going to be another 10, 15, 20 years of horrible, horrible conditions to get to that point. And the Israelis will have to suffer some losses to say to themselves, there is no, no further gain in continuing. There's no, it's impossible to continue to manage the conflict, as Netanyahu claimed. And the second prerequisite, in my view, is a change of leadership. As long as you don't have leaders committed and open to the prospect of two-state solution, I don't think that's going to happen. So you need a change of leadership, and perhaps organization, reorganization of the Israel political system as such. You have to have uh, opposition, center, left, uh, organized, to be able to present this platform, solve the platform. Uh, so these are all the preconditions. What do you, do you do? You buy into any of this? No, I, I absolutely agree with regard to leaders. That uh, leaders make difference, but in every case that uh, we know, there were always combinations. There were at least three factors, all of them. One leader. Second, what is the process that was going on from bottom up, civil yes. society. Mm -hmm. Third, external pressure. Yeah. And in all of them played, but with different weight. So, for example, when you talk about, uh, let's say, Algerian, leader was extremely important. But there were other factors as well. Yeah. You know, French society was polarized. There was very strong international pressure within the period of decolonization of PrEP. The same was going on with South Africa. Leaders were extremely important. In North Ireland, uh, the leaders played a really less important role. Yeah. The role of civil society was very important, and the pressure of the three uh, states that eventually united in their interests, Britain, Ireland, 
and the United States, and they put a lot of pressure. That's right. And so that's... you need this condition. Yeah. In Israel at the moment, you don't have none of them at the moment. Yeah. You don't have leader. Yeah. Leader has yeah. to change. Yeah. Civil society is dead. It's the ones that, yeah. you know, yeah. is a yeah. positive one. And there is no pressure. There's really no, meaningful no pressure. pressure. But it's we right. agreed yeah. in the first round that it's temporary. So what we really assume that there will be pressure from, probably will be pressure, building up slowly, slowly. You know, think about such a step that uh, settlers will have to get visa in order to get to Europe. Yeah. That's an example. Small step. Yeah. yeah. No, you can say you are not Israel. It's a pressure. You don't live That's in right. state of Israel. That's right. You know, you have to That's get right. it. That's right. So there, you know, there is an arsenal of possibilities, and I hope I hope they lose it. I really hope yeah, sure. because I mean the three three requirement exactly right. You need leadership, you need civil society, people to people, and again, you need an external pressure. There's no doubt about it. That's finally I want to touch on the question of I still believe that in the final analysis, the Arab Peace Initiative hmm. is still valid, and it still may yeah, well provide right. uh, the framework for the actual negotiation to take place. Do you, do you agree with that? I agree. Yeah. In fact, you know, we had a, a very vivid example just a week ago, which is, in my opinion, a major, major news, that such a possibility came. And uh, unfortunately, Netanyahu, as we agreed, he was not, but I believe that under different uh, uh, construction yeah. circumstances, such a possibility will be excellent one. Yeah. Well, Danny, what can I say? Yeah, yeah, unusual, wonderful. No, I love come you. I'm glad to bless you. <laughs> it was on. fun, really fun <laughs> to have a conversation with you. Thank you. Thank it was you. great. Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page and stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.